Hi everybody and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne and that is Chris Sacknesson. Today on the program we're going to be continuing our discussion about Atlantis and branching off from there into other lost cities, fictional, semi-fictional, or otherwise. Chris, how are you doing this Tuesday? It's just past noon here. How are you? I'm good, David. I'm hiding out from a project that I have to do. It's a money project, and uh, I I ducked out on that to uh, to make a new piece of music, which I call "Stay Ancient and Alert." Uh, and the video is, is is my artwork. Very very humble, just still images. But I think that uh, what I'm I've done with uh, on the music instrument front. And you know there is a great tradition that uh, with people with much higher levels of skill, you know, uh, than I can ever dream of. Uh, so it it's not you know in any way new. And of course, how did we get music if people weren't inventing instruments? But the idea of that invention of the instrument and also thinking of oneself as an instrument uh, as part of the composition process. I mean, that's just very exciting. You know, it's very hard to do that in a writing sense, I think. Don't you, don't you think? It, 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 the, the instrument, we either think there isn't one or it's a computer keyboard or, mm -hmm. or perhaps a tape recorder, I suppose. But right. uh, it, the idea of actually... Uh, not, I mean, I, not if you read Chris's textbook, which has oh, well, many, thank you. many lateral strategies for exactly what you're talking about. Um, that's all I'll say about that. But if you're interested in what Chris is saying about feeling constricted by it just being a keyboard or perhaps a pen and some paper, um, there are there are many Yoda-like ways around that. I appreciate that, and I really think it's great how you've embraced the physicality and dimensionality. That's a word I use a lot. Uh, the dimensionality of your journaling process, because... I'm seeing that in my current crop of, of university students now. Uh, they got onto it right, you know, right up. And I think because I haven't been uh, in this setting live with students because of COVID, uh, I'm hyper amped. So we've really accelerated the evolution of the semester very quickly. But their journal connection, you can see them reacting and interacting with that. In a completely new way, you know, they're not looking down at notes for reinforcement on that front. That's not what they're doing. It, it's it's like a living piece of communication, and I I feel so rewarded by that. And your embrace of that, I think, is is really important. It, you know, these are just cool uh, cool techniques. You know, mm -hmm. they they add to the repertoire. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So. We over here, Gus actually fell asleep because I loaded up. I don't know if you've ever taken a kid out to the park, but there are so many things that you have to put in your survival pack to make sure that the kid doesn't dehydrate, that he has snacks, these uh, diapers, wipes, etc., etc., so on and so forth. But I took him out brought him home. We finished up watching Atlantis Rising, which is a documentary on National Geographic, Disney Plus, where James Cameron hires a guy to go all over the world in search of Atlantis. I want to find my version of James Cameron. I want James Cameron to pay my salary to do shit like this. 
<laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Get and, and he'd like that too because he has a great set of skills. But if you leave him alone, you know, too long on, you know, with his own deal, uh, well, you end up, you know, it's not good. It, it, it needs collaboration. And I think that would be really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I think James Cameron, well, in the show, he comes off really skeptical and smart. I think he's a smart guy, but his, uh, his Avatar movie was awful. So, yeah, he really does need to be collaborated with and reined in. But he's also, he has made some of the best action films of my lifetime. Terminator 2, Aliens, The Abyss. Did you ever see The Abyss? That was a really good one. I was going to bring up The Abyss because that is is where uh, one of his interesting features is on display. I, I Oddly enough, I think of it as somewhat analogous to Lynch's uh, fixation on electricity. But Cameron is always, I think, one whisper away from allegorizing uh, his relationship problems of the of the moment, mm-hmm. uh, and I mean that's perfectly fair. Uh, but I once saw uh, Art Clokey, the guy who invented Gumby and Pokey, the clay animation genius. Mm-hmm. I saw him live in Berkeley. And he showed a whole catalog of, of work that had never been seen before. And in clay animation, it's all about his uh, psych therapy and dealing with uh, marital and relationship problems. And it is such a weird mirror to see that through. Mm-hmm. So I feel a little bit like that with Cameron. That yeah. uh, I I don't know. I maybe that's that's certainly unfair to the the grand uh, you know technolog technology realized uh, imagination that that he does deliver mm-hmm. he um they started off in crete because the idea is that the minoans were the atlanteans and they went all the way to the strait of gibraltar and found some really interesting structures nothing conclusive obviously but nothing really ever is conclusive with explorations like this we've talked about it before but you that's have, the whole that's point. The, that's the whole point. You're never that you're is never gonna the get whole it. So point. if you want to, if you want to, you can always say, mm, no. It's funny, I was having a discussion with a friend of mine. He's really cool. We should get him on the show once one time. His name is uh, Ren. And we were discussing the, the pyramid that was discovered in Antarctica and we were looking at some of the debunkers who were going after it. And the debunkers criticism of it was, Oh, it's just a coincidence. And we both said, well, that's not very scientific, is it? I mean, you're serious. Oh, no, it's just a coincidence. (laughs) It's like, are you sure you understand what science even is? Because saying that something's a coincidence is a fun rhetorical flourish when you're, you know, debating the existence of God with a fedora-wearing Reddit-using atheist. But it's not very compelling when you're looking at a very clearly... uh, man-made pyramid structure that was found in Antarctica. So, think, people. Well, you know, it's a little bit like uh, the grand proposition that suddenly there was time and out of nothing came something. Yeah, that, doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't hold for me. That doesn't sound all that scientific, does it? It, mm-hmm. it sounds a little bit like there was an egg. Or and one day it decided to be a turtle, <laughs> and the turtle 
was lonely and then gave you know birth to the world. I mean, all of those, all the, the creation myths are always a little bit dubious, even the Big Bang Theory. But uh, yeah, the exploration doesn't have, um, well, conclusions. I mean, what a, what an ominous sort of word that is. You know, I agree. always want to, you know, to you know arrive at a conclusion or, and then you know everything that we love. If you do love a book or a movie or a world or a person or, the last thing you want is conclusion. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you you want the adventure to go on. You 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 don't want you know that we we kind of resist endings as in. You know, as I, in death. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like conclusions, occlusions, delusions. Well, I kind of like delusions, honestly. I'm happy with mine. But, Chris, before we move on, because I know you have a very rich and varied journey that you want to take me on today, what's my imaginative challenge that's going to be running in, on the second track of my brain? <clears throat> okay, we'll, we'll do your challenge first before my band and... Mm-hmm. and uh, my aphorism but this is uh, and this starts with a little bit of a recommendation for everyone but I really uh, I keep getting at you know about parents uh, recommendations of how to deal with the post-covid world of reconnection with their children's education well this is entirely free it just takes a little bit of the uh, mental equivalent of, of, of some elbow grease or, or just some curiosity. But anyone who's, uh, you know, kind of excitedly alert to culture and, and curious about futures and trends, uh, a really fabulous and often overlooked resource is the U.S. Patent Office. I mean, it is a serious uh, wonder house uh, treasure made maze sort of thing of dreams and, and you know dogged drawing board ambition by tremendously capable people and also complete loons mm-hmm. so it, it's a powerful way of looking at uh, the notions of progress uh, which we talked about in an earlier series of the podcast notions and myths of, of progress and how progress relates to words like innovation and invention. Are those different? Well, the Patent Office focuses on inventions. So if there is a difference in your mind between invention, innovation, and progress, focus on what your connotative association with is invention. Because you are charged during this podcast to come up with the name and a brief description, as in an abstract, for the patent office for a new invention. So you are confronted with, you know, Terence McKenna, one of our heroes, talks about the notion of novelty in a very specific, interesting sort of way. We're all obsessed with the new and what's what's going to happen tomorrow and whatnot. Well, this is a real direct look at that. What what, you know, in real time. Uh, what can you come up with? And I know it will be interesting. And you are, of course, encouraged to uh, to sketch as well as think and write, and to think and write via sketching. Mm, okay. So the Got in, it? the invention. Are you looking for an invention that is 
specific to helping children learn after COVID, or can it just be? Anything? No, no, okay. no, 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 no. Sorry, that that was a little bit of no. It was a lead. This in. is just yeah, something. Okay. Yeah, that was a lead in that the, uh, the the patent office can promote a lot of interesting uh, sociology and scientific uh, experiments projects for. Well, basically, um, like third grade through twelve, really, depending on how you you know craft the prompt. But mm -hmm. there's a, just a lot of weird. It's just a fabulous other world to wander into, uh, and by law, it has to be fairly accessible. Mm -hmm. And the bewildering number of categories. But you are free to choose any category, anything at all that that jumps out at you. Something probably that might have been on your mind in the last couple of days, something that you may take for granted, you know? Mm -hmm. A lot of categories we dismiss are kind of important, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think I, it, needs, uh, it needs work, but I know what I'm gonna, I know what the problem is that I'm trying to solve, at least, so. Okay, well, there you go. Cool. Now, but just that frame alone is very important because not all creative imaginative work is a problem to solve, I don't think. It can be considered that way from the personal perspective of, of the, the creator, maybe. But sometimes that's not the model, and sometimes it is, and in this case it very much is. Cool. So right. you got it. I got okay. it. Yes, sir. All right. Let's get this kicked off. Where would you like to start no, I got to do my band name and my aphorism. That's right. You do have to do that. Okay, my, I'll do it quick. The band name came to me very suddenly because it's very strong and it's disturbing. And it brings to mind both ray gun and back alley connotations for me. It's gamma knife. That's which so has, cool. That is so cool. That's the best one. Gamma knife. I love that. Yeah. I think that's really, uh, and the title of the album, uh, I had this idea there's only one motel. You know, there are, are many bars around the world and you can work in one or go into one and feel like, well, you've just, you know, that's kind of their appeal. And there are, there are many kinds of institutions <coughs> that repeat in format churches, you know. Yeah. But there's something odd about a motel. And I had this sort of half, thought of you know walking from one room into another you know a, a kind of quantum version of Frank Zappa's 200 motels um, so that was my band thought there cool. and um, I think the music would be a, a melange as, as would be appropriate to that kind of sounding name it just a mixture of you know the future and a very ancient idea of the knife yeah know? I like that. I, it it immediately makes me think of a sort of maybe synth revival. I don't know how much you've heard of vaporwave as a genre, but it, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I think that's very apt. I didn't want to flush that out too much because I thought I don't know enough to to really uh, you know to really weave a, a clever path there. But that that uh, was in associative terms, was very much on my mind. Absolutely. It could You've be, set it beautifully. It could be vaporwave, so sort of repurposed Muzak uh, with the sounds of comings and goings and the stories of people floating through these, uh, the one hotel, right? And, you know, and you could have the 
the track listing be, you know, the drifter, the prostitute, the businessman, you know, and, and just have the it all be motel themed. I just think that's a cool yeah. idea. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm really glad you, you, you fleshed that out because there is an association that was in the back of my mind that that, that I think uh, really does connect with this idea and you've just helped me realize it, which is one of the key things that conversation can do. Uh, I'm, I have this idea for a workshop and it, it's, it's gotten some interest and I've got some donations. But the idea is, it happens to be dentist office art, but that's related to, to motel room art. You know, these mass-produced canvases that are so uh, different and yet so eerily similar. I think they're a wonderful view of something, I'm, and I, it's interesting to research where they come from. But the idea is, is to, uh, with 20 of these donated pieces, for a group of 20 people to make a decision, can these works of really bizarrely poor but not interesting uh, outsider art, uh, can they be rehabilitated? Or is it necessary just to paint over the canvas and just start again? So that's just a, that, that's a, that's a workshop project that I've, I've, I've got in mind, which has gotten some interest. So. All right, I'm glad you like Gamma Knife, and I think that, that, that everything that you've said about that is, is helped me see more clearly what, I, uh, what was on my mind, but not uh, fully in my mind, so mm. to speak. I like that distinction, what's on your mind versus what's in your mind. That's, yeah. <laughs> we don't think about yeah, that that good. often, because we don't have sensory neurons in our brain. We can't feel our brain. No. Uh, so we, we don't think of depth often. Unless you're a Jungian, and then you're always thinking about depth. But if you are meditating, which I've been doing recently, because, you know, I'm on my Alan Watts and Ram Dass kick. Um, if you focus on the area an inch between your eyes, an inch deep into your head, it's quite a fucked up experience, because you don't think about that part of your brain. Right? You don't think about no. it in terms of locationality. So, yeah, what's on your mind, what's at the top of your mind versus what's it what's what's in the what's in the cave what you know blind pale screeching creatures are, are in there <laughs> versus yeah. the people or, or is it is it like some uh lone security guard in a big corporate office you know and he can't leave the desk because that's his job he's got to look at the monitors and he's hoping that the pizza delivery comes to him, yeah. you know, because that's the ner he's dependent on the nervous system, you know. Mm -hmm. He's really yeah, he's the brain, but he's really just a security guard behind the desk, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And he needs those camera monitors and the pizza, to, you know. He needs other, other people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's an odd thought, that yeah. Odd thought. We really do need other people with sensory devices. Well, on that note, here's my aphorism, and it's kind of in keeping with that, the band name of Gamma Knife. You know, it's a little bit it's sharp. Mm -hmm. It's a question. Aphorisms can be questions. How do you know if you are confronting an enemy and not, first of all, 
your own fear, which is an enemy you take with you. Yeah, I like that. I do like that. And I, th- I if anybody meditates on that for 10 minutes, a lot of stuff is going to open up. I think it's really not that... It's both really complex if you want to make it complex, but also not complex at all. Because if we think about your aphorism, uh, what it's saying is that, number one, the major takeaway is that you do enjoy your fear. Your fear is your constant companion. And oh, that's a brilliant reposition. Yeah. That's a brilliant reposition. Mm-hmm. It's not just a cargo or a passenger. It, it, you've denutralized that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, potentially, you know, right. potentially. But, but yeah, a com- yeah. And so, I like that thought. And so then you could say, you know, this projection of fear onto the other it's an inversion of love but it's also it's got love in it it's yin yang it's got peanut butter in the chocolate because projecting fear onto people is projecting your ideal constant companion onto strangers so it's yeah it's worth worth sitting thinking about well this is a good example of the bigger project of ours one of one of several key ones of looking at conventional wisdom because there's an element of this that you could hear repeated you know by any you know psychologist a professional and yet there has been movement there's been an evolution of an idea of something well a psychologist would say well Walt, why are you loyal to your fear or fears and but it would still be an, a kind of object you know almost like a machine or something that you could put in your bag you know it, it still suggests a kind of of control and and a, a level of choice on on the manipulative uh, level whereas a constant companion is a very, very different idea. It's still a noun, but it has moved into a very different dimension. And you don't have the same control over that. And you don't have the same loyalty to it as you would to, you know, a thing, even a magic thing that you keep in your pocket, you know, like my Zuni fetish bear, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be like, it would be another level up. So you've evolved that idea, and that should be, I think we all need to keep that in mind, that that is a challenge when we're uh, interacting with people, is that we, we do evolve something, you know, and we get some adventure happening, we get some exploration, some movement, and that's what we all seek, so, yeah. so well done. Cool, excellent. All right, the meat, the meat. What would you like to talk about first in terms of Atlantis, lost civilizations. We mentioned last time Fordlandia, Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities, and Burroughs. So that's the map. Yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff there. Well, I have a kind of uh, overview sort of assertion. I'll, I'll say it's an assertion. It came to me as just a potential thought of civilization. Because I think what we're, we've been interested in from the very beginning is differences between culture and civilization. And civilization seems to be a very big and heavy 
uh, honorific, you know, a mm-hmm. label of, of achievement. And yet, it, it, it's, it is a lot clearer, I think, than the notion of culture in many ways, and we've devoted episodes in the past to that. So I want to start off with this as, an, as a general proposition, but to uh, cover some bases that or connections that um, so a couple of listeners brought to my attention. Here's, my, here's what my statement that just occurred to me out of the balcony. What if our modern notion of civilization has as much to do with past civilizations as a Clint Eastwood spaghetti western shot in Spain has to do with the North American Old West, which isn't that old. That was my first. So I think that we're dealing with uh, a paper moon situation of levels and levels, not just one level, but multi-levels of kind of cardboard or imaginary uh, ideas of, of what civilization is and what the past is. and we've really really inherited that in not I mean secondhand a hundred times over right I mm-hmm. mean it's yeah and and certain aspects of that have gotten accelerated like a kind of romance side of it I think but in terms of real knowledge I don't think we're any I mean we just we really do struggle with remembering what we had for dinner, you know, <laughs> three do. days ago. So we certainly do, we, and that that calls to mind uh, the documentaries that I'm watching about Atlantis. <clears throat> they put it at about ten thousand BC, um, and so they're looking at structures that might have been diaspora, Atlantean diaspora, that are, you know, eight hundred years old, twelve hundred years old. And my contention is, what if we were looking for something that's 100,000 years old? What, what would that look like? Would there be anything left at all? Or would it have transformed into a part of our landscape that we're just... Lo- so this, the scope of these things, I think, is really worth reevaluating when we're talking about deep time. Um, and maybe everything's not as close as we seem to think that it is. Because I don't, I don't buy the idea that uh, that humans just started becoming advanced six thousand years ago. There's, there's no way. We've been around too long, and we've had the same brains. So I think that uh, we've got to expand our scope. Well, you know, in in painting and photography terms, you know, they talk about the ideal viewing distance. You know, when you're setting up a, you know, a gallery. Uh, what what distance in very physical terms, right? Not not virtual, uh, you know, COVID, uh, go on a virtual tour sort of terms, but being right in front of something. And I think with the 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 current human time limits of uh, culture and development, there there it's just not an ideal viewing distance. So we need to extend it, you know further back in time and it's I mean the whole difference between further and farther you know whether it's conceptual or physical and literal I mean time is the beautiful test of that it's both further and farther back in time Mm -hmm. to give us some angle where the dots aren't just all blurring 
you know, mm-hmm. which is what I think happens nearer in time. Right. You know, it's we're just looking at something too close, and the pixels do not a picture make. Yeah, very yeah. true. Very true. They may make a picture. <laughs> you know, they may, but that's not. But that's to say they always do. So that's a starting point. Um, I did want to connect Atlantis back to. Um, we we discussed uh, Michael Heiser's recently contrib- uh, concluded and finished and, and achieved uh, lifetime work called City in the Desert of Nevada, just north of where I live, um, and that. A lot that got some real attention. It's uh, he's a very interesting figure. He's he's in his late 80s now. This has been probably the longest work in progress by uh, an artist in our lifetimes that we know of. Um, How long it is a grand. Sorry. How long did it take? You know. Oh, he's been working on this for half a century. Okay, so longer than the. Uh, 88 year old Japanese sculptor who's just putting the finishing touches on his 40 year uh, Virgin Mary statue well it's in that line that's a great yeah okay that's cool I, I hadn't thought of that but uh, yeah um, it's there are other examples of it and I think we should all take a great deal of, of heart I mean that is the lost explorer uh, eth- you know ethos um, down to the ground it's just beautiful you know mm-hmm. it's it's in the art of archery you know it's it starts with that sort of mindset of you know and as we said there's no path to cold mountain well you know there's no way to get to atlantis uh if you can't stop thinking of atlantis you know so those kind of things circulate around that but it is just I think it's worth mentioning because we touched on Heiser's work before there is a kind of Atlantean dream vision there mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I don't know how much more alive a myth can be than all of the concrete and design time and, and mining industry expertise and uh, art vision that Heiser's put forward for a long time yeah um, yeah you know Atlantis is is there he he doesn't he hasn't said that well yes he has said it he said it about as forcefully as you can with hieroglyphs that are you know 30 45 feet high or more you know mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. he said it yeah um, I love the idea of the emergent Atlantis that's a really cool idea that Atlantis is an emergent property of creation and, and art it's uh it's it's building a, a, a transceiver to that idea to that uh you called it this in our pregame the sigil of atlantis i, I love the yes. idea of atlantis as a sigil that has stretched out through time and one of its no nodes its emergent nodes is michael heiser's city that's a great way to put it, and I think nodes, you know, as an organic sort of, you know, uh, rhythmatic sort of term, I think is perfect. I think that's an appropriate sort of balance of uh, the, the, the chemistry and the geometry of the thing and how the Atlantean dream works on those oscillating levels, you know, and that's, it is, it's a vibration, it's a harmonic that reaches out through time. And 
that I, I, I was going to mention just briefly of, uh, within the Tolkien mythology, the island of Numenor uh, has references to Atlantis. A listener mentioned that to me, and I think that's important. It is, it's true. It's not a huge feature. It's certainly not mentioned or a part of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but it's part of Tolkien's mythology. But what you said about Heiser's city made me think of a piece of music called Engulf Cathedral. Uh, by Debussy, um, which is about a legend of, uh, in this case it's a cathedral, but, but it ties in with villages and towns that disappear and reappear magically in time. The musical Brigadoon is based on that. Uh, but mirage cities are, are just a feature of mythologies and legends in uh, North Africa. Uh, they move around like mirages. They reappear in time. Uh, they appear for certain people for certain reasons. And I think that's an interesting uh, way of thinking of Atlantis, that yes, we our first image is maybe kind of uh, some ruined version of the Parthenon underwater, which I think is a beautiful idea, and maybe a really interesting uh, giant head that is, you know, neither Hellenistic nor uh, like the Toltec version. You know, it's it's something distinctly different. Um, but what if it were really uh, like one of uh, Calvino's invisible cities, existing on a very geographically uh, defined level of of metaphysics and mythos, but quantum that way, but moving through time in its own uh, magic field, you know, which may be, and that's the beauty of it, it's kind of the self-explaining idea. Where did it come from? It came from Atlantis, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. That's the origin point of, uh, well, maybe everything, but certainly a lot of cool things, you know? I'm wondering... Uh one of it might have been his latest novel although it came out some time ago but Steve Erickson who's one of my favorite living writers wrote Zeroville and These Dreams of You his uh, last one uh, Shadow Bond the conceit of it is that the Twin Towers reappear in the Badlands 20 years after they fall <laughs> so that's just the thing that yeah that's a lovely up. idea uh, yeah. I uh I, I, I'm, I'm envious of Stephen's career, but I, I really do admire his, his ideas and his writing. I think he's, that's a really good reference point. And it's a lovely story idea. Uh, I think certainly for people who have been out in... I mean, I, I love the American Badlands. Uh, the Badlands areas of, that I've been to in other parts of the world I find really haunting and, and moving. And they are... Uh, Implicitly, perhaps, because of, of their appearance and nature today, they are often the remnants of some mass ecosystem of the past that was, you know, aquatically based, and they're so they're rich in all of these uh, fossil forms that we kind of intuitively, through you know, the ghost radio signal of culture and our own cellular memories we sense that that stuff is there mm. but when we really get physical evidence of it uh, there's just a brief story I was uh, 
there's Henry David Thoreau uh, was out walking uh, with someone. I mean, he was talking about Native American arrowheads in the region, and they had a particularly sort of interesting pink color. And his walking companion said, well, really, well, where can you find those? Mm-hmm. And just like a shell on the beach, Thoreau looks down and goes, right here, and picks one up. <laughs> you know, and yeah. I think there, there is that kind of, uh, that just, that, that tangibility of the fossils. But I was up the road, you know, all of this area was, you know, this giant inland sea full of strangeness and it's still there because there's an area that is famous for trilobites Mm -hmm. which are a very common fossil but still pretty beautiful and so I was I happened to be up there a few months and I I said to this guy who's kind of uh, he had the concession so to speak and would, would help kind of be a guide and lead you to finding something. Uh, and uh, I said, do you, you know, do you, aren't they pretty common around here? He goes, oh yeah, you don't really need, you know, you, you just go out and find something. And I said, really? And he goes, well, look right down at your foot. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I'll be damned. I'll be damned. Hmm. So that's a kind of sigil of Atlantis in a way, because we wouldn't have recognized that without the Atlantean vision. You know, mm, we know yeah. it's, you know, it's the Atlantean idea to refer with a word to that amazing shape as a trilobite. I think that's what Atlantis means in world culture, because it, whether it's called that or not, this idea is, it, it's a sigil of something that happened either in the brain or the cosmic mind. That, that made humans human. That's kind of what's going on. If, it, if Atlantis is the brain, what is it, what's it being submerged in? Because the ocean would be a sigil as well. It, it's, it's, it's part of it. It's a, it's a, it's a ver- Atlantis is more of a verb than a noun in this construction. So what do you think the water is? Well, I think it's a, a, a sort of a substrate uh, like into the nervous system, you know, the mm. brain dissipating, you could say, or really reaching out through the network, um, which is one of the reasons why I think the, you know, people are so fond of the internet as being, uh, you know, a model of how the, the individual computer brain, the isolated computer connects to to culture, and that's sort of the dominant paradigm of our time, whether that's you know uh, accurate or not. And then you have the problem of things like Wi-Fi and uh, the cloud, you know, technology, and all sorts of things that get very strange. But I think Atlantis is submerged. If if we want to take look at that side of it, of it being a sunken, lost civilization. Um, Probably you, you can't get around Plato's uh, take on that in terms of, of hubris and or arrogance. You know, it's the cautionary tale again, too. You know, it's the it's the vision that makes us uh, humans knowing. You know, rather than humans just walking around vertically. Uh, but it's also that that 
don't get too big for your britches, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Stay humble. Stay part. Stay stay integrated with habitat, you know. Um, that that would be. In a sense, that is the Atlantis is the moment where there is a distinction between the human made and the natural world. Right. That's its power, actually. I just yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think. It's mm-hmm. it stands on that weird giant threshold, and okay. it's appropriately, uh, you know, visualized as a a city of of of, of magic and knowledge, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and of course both those have had devastating, you know, consequences as well as 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 miraculous ones. So that's it. It kind of is no wonder that I guess that. It has such potency in in the human psyche, you know. Mm-hmm. Because, How could it not? Yeah, in a way, it it is a part of it, if not a complete magical sigil representation of it, going both ways, you know, exuding out and going deeper in. Right. Okay. Well, now this is a good segue because I I want to get your down to the red dirt. Oklahoma point of view on Fordlandia. Yeah. <laughs> the, and because I'll just, my background on it, I'm, I'm just fascinated by anything left to rot in the jungle. I, I've had some wonderful experiences with that of a car graveyard that mm-hmm. I, I discovered in Borneo. There's just been some wonderful things. It's hauntology in, a, in just a, just, you inescapable way there's no way for me to avoid just my fascination for that um but there are actually examples around the world of a kind of uh well pre-woke corporate visionaryism about workers lives you know it, mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. there's very there there was a whole tractor works and a big industrial machinery complex built in Melbourne Australia and uh, this incredibly utopian designed uh, suburb for all of the workers to live in so there was you know no commute and there's just some weird things going on there but Give me your take on Fordlandia and why, in any way, that might be a relevant touchstone to Atlantis. Well, we can start with the hubris angle. Henry Ford built Fordlandia because he wanted to get around the, the UK's stranglehold on the rubber trade. He was tired of paying their prices for it, so he negotiated with the government of Brazil to set up a small... Uh, rubber processing plant and also you know barracks and kitchens and a a place where employees could live and work together Um, I think that it's a modern representation of uh, what Atlantis at least but most lost civilizations most empires that crumble uh, are, are monuments to and the fact that it's in the jungle much like a city being submerged in water the fact that it's yes. in, that it's in the jungle where nature comes back. Actually, I don't like using that word because that's tricky. But where the where the plants come back, we'll say, where the vegetation comes back to sort of reclaim and put its own 
spin on Fordlandia, I think metaphorically works absolutely perfectly. You could take it from a capitalist, uh, industrialist angle of, uh, you know, you could, you could even look at Henry Ford himself and, you know, sort of what became of, uh, you know, his whole, his whole deal. Um, you know, the ultimate sort of, uh, you know, putting people on an assembly line, uh, one of the figureheads of this kind of turning humans into machines in a, in an economic sense that we all have come to, to loathe. Um, and I just, I love the, <clears throat> the fact that it is a modern ruin, you know, I mean, it is, uh, it's a, for some time, there were about 90 people living there, I guess, because when you live in the Amazon, uh, shelter can be shelter if you choose to make it that way. Um, there was also, there's a great album by Johan Johansson, who was a, a com- film composer. He, he did a lot of uh, soundtracks that I think are really great. They're great to put on for, for writing. He did like uh, Mandy. Um, Mandy's the one that I listen to a lot. Last and First Men was the movie that he made. Uh, let me think of, let me just take a second here. Oh, right, Arrival. But anyway, he came out with an album in uh, 2008 called Fordlandia. And uh, it's really, it's, it's an interesting listen. Oh, I should listen to that. And I, I think, I think he, he really uh, evokes that feeling of, of the vegetation coming back to take it over. But, you know, I totally understand why you brought this up, because it wasn't, uh, while it wasn't a natural disaster necessarily that, that put a halt to the whole thing, it was, uh, you know, nature still came back and reclaimed it. It's why you shouldn't exactly, build, build, exactly. build houses on the beach. You know, the world's going to come for you at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, you know, it raises an interesting question of can the the notion of a city, by definition, be an act of hubris and human arrogance? I mean, is that already the warning that was built into? Uh, you know, the whole program, uh, that there is a scale upon which we're supposed to exist in this plane. And there's also a tempo pace of life, you know, Mm -hmm. that if you try to blow that out too much, and I think we've done a pretty good job at that, Mm -hmm. uh, things, you know, intrinsically get weird you know, that there's no other choice. So I think that is exactly what, what the message of Fortlandia and the connection point is. Um, and then, you know, we, we mentioned Calvino and Invisible Cities, which is, I just think it's such a damn elegant book, you know? Yeah, it's so it, great. It, it, it just, it makes me feel good just looking at it. You know, Mm -hmm. and I think, how can you really, you don't really feel that way about, you know, that many, uh, you know, trade paperback books, really, you know, just Mm -hmm. as objects. Mm -hmm. But this line, I think, is something that uh, we all need to remember and accept. And some of the really hardline materialist science people really need to, to hear this. 
Kublai Khan does not necessarily believe everything Marco Polo says when he describes the cities visited on his expeditions. Okay, so there isn't necessarily belief, but there is enjoyment, you know? Mm -hmm. the, there is value that is of a different kind than uh, maybe what we, you know, too often associate value with, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, it is valued, we just, we, we struggle with it. Um, so I thought that was, was something that um, is also a, a crucial part of the Atlantis myth, is it doesn't actually require our belief to enjoy it. You know? Right, it's, right. He also says in know? the he says in the book that elsewhere is a negative mirror, and that the traveler right. recognizes uh, what he has, uh, but also what he doesn't have. Right. I also think I I keep thinking about the line from the book, uh, talking about Atlantis as a sigil, which is that the city is redundant, uh, that it you know that it repeats itself so that something will stick in our minds. All of these kind of are circling this this same idea, but I do I love when you talk about the book itself looking like this great object. I just you know I love like the spider web city. You immediately start yeah. thinking about like what what is that? What are the seashell city? Um, but back to your yeah. kind of original quote about Kublai Khan not necessarily believing everything. You know this is our fascination with Charles Fort. And this is something that is so difficult because I've tried to explain this in blogs, uh, in interviews, uh, sometimes even foolishly on social media. And that is that you don't, is that you actually should be listening to the crazy people, right? The people who believe that, uh, I don't know, pick your conspiracy theory. And those are the people who you should actually be be listening to because by casting such a wide net and allowing themselves to be take, taken in by the spirit of what's being said you will get a little bit of that rubbed off on you and you'll be able to see things that other people can't see because they've shut every single thing down that doesn't go a b c like life doesn't go a b c life is made up of words in which letters are arranged in <laughs> countless permutations so you know, it's more it's more learning to look at life in that way. Well, it, you know, it's it's being able to to see things and to hear things uh, it, it, from a different point of view. I tell my students to try to listen to language and free it from the semantics. Don't leaps, you know, to the semantic level past the music. Uh, I had a student who had a, a really lovely sentence. She was it's talking about a funeral, and the she says, no one, I should care, I should carry on. And it actually took a few minutes for the students to hear that in pure musical terms. You know, they would start paraphrasing what was said rather than really just, you know, breaking it down to, uh, you know, almost an acoustical level, you know. There is that aspect of language which we, we should, should remember. Um, but... Another uh, set of people on this front that I think are just worth touching on, uh, Burroughs, particularly his notions of, of interzone, 
I mean, what a, an amazing creation that is. I mean, he's, it's so, it's Burning Man, it's uh, Incan, it's, it's so many different worlds beautifully presented as some kind of coherent, albeit uh, immensely uh, complex mosaic metropolis uh, of culture. Um, I also think uh, William Gibson's notion of the bridge, uh, which is the Bay Bridge in, in, uh, in that trilogy of books, I think that has a lot of resonance with sort of Burning Man aesthetics and sort of this ancient tribalism thing blurring into some weird futuristic cyborg uh, mythos. Um, and then I flash back to, you know, we've talked about Matang's uh, stick charts for navigation of tides and currents developed by the Micronesian people in, uh, in the pretty remote Pacific. I mean, I've been there and it's just, it's, it's a haunting environment where you feel you are on the verge of disappearing uh, at any given moment. And, and, you know, now with rising sea levels, that's in fact even more possible. But nevertheless, that was the part of the world that was saw immense fighting in World War II. And I think that's an interesting new sort of way to think, you know, that's another way to think of Atlantis's collapse as possibly war or overextending yeah, you know, yeah, on they, that kind of political level. They were, they were a um, warlike people too, so... Yeah. Well, that's part of Plato's warning about that. He was naval imperialism, you know. Uh, but the hydrogen bombs is something that just blows my mind, pardon the pun. Uh, <laughs> it, it's staggering to me that we have forgotten that it wasn't just the two atomic bombs dropped in August of 1945 on Japan enemy or not, uh, it was a whole decade or more of incredibly powerful hydrogen detonations out on these atolls in, you know, which were in fact populated by a very interesting uh, set of people who have completely been displaced by this strangeness, which nobody talks about today. So I think behind, you know, this is another way of thinking about the disaster of Atlantis. And in Burroughs' mythology about the cities of the Red Knight, there is a, a prehistorical mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. nuclear thing. So it's very, you know, and as we said with, the, with creation myths, they they move in, you know, the, 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 the terminology changes a little bit, but it's still the same idea. I mean, a nuclear holocaust is, you know, that's an apocalyptic event. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter if it's human-made or nature-made, you know, that's kind of, it's both. Uh, and that's underpinning the Atlantis story the whole way, you know, because it wouldn't be Atlantis if it hadn't been destroyed or fallen. Really. Right. Right, exactly. Ex again, yeah, it works on the metaphorical level and it works on the pseudo-archaeological, the, the mystico-archaeological angle as well. Both of which I think are real and interchangeable and it's both and neither. Um, but I think you really summed that up well. 
I don't want to dilute it with uh, my rambles because I think that's actually a really good point. Yeah, Atlantis ends up as a as a sigil of warning. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Exactly, exactly. Warning and promise, but it's uh, well. We'll talk more about warnings. I've I've got my tool relates to that. But how are we going on the imaginative challenge? We're going well. I have one last point that just popped into my head while you were talking. The city of Atlantis is often described as being a bunch of concentric rings, and its status as a deep-time warning artifact, repeating motif, uh, makes sense in its construction, right? In those concentric rings that, that flow out. Um, there might be something to that. Well, I think there is. I mean, it's, an, it's, it's all you know, related to the mandala idea, the target idea, certainly the labyrinth. The original maps we know very conclusively were all circular. Very mm. interesting idea. I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know that at all. Maps were yeah, circular? Yeah, that was true for quite some time, yes. That was the starting point. That was, you know, I mean, I think that's an interesting... Uh, you know, premise for the whole thing to take off on. Of course, they're going to be circular. You know, hmm. and that it's it's interesting that there is a lot of of thinking and uh, value uh, values already implicit in that idea. I think. Amazing. Well, for my imaginative challenge, the problem that I'm facing currently at my house, I'm having a real fly issue. I don't know if a possum died in my backyard. I looked high and low. I couldn't find anything dead. I don't know where these things are coming from, but I don't like them in my house. I don't think anybody does. Um, no, no. They're, they're filthy, filthy, disgusting creatures. The, them and cockroaches are, are God's worst creations, I think. Um, but so the fly issue they were getting in somehow and they would come in these groups of four and i became an absolute master at smashing them quickly i went to home depot and i bought several traps that i laid out in my backyard or actually uh broke branches off of trees and hung from sticks like you know i was really out there sweating and getting these traps ready and they they've worked i haven't seen a fly in my house for the past two days although if i look out into my backyard and I look into the trap, there are, in each trap every day, there are dozens if not hundreds of flies swarming around in there. So this is a problem for the exterminator. Uh, they've been given a call. We're going to figure this all out. But I was thinking about advanced fly-killing technology for inside the home. I, have, I like it. I have, a, I have a peppermint spray that I use that is, you know, allegedly non-toxic to uh, humans, children, animals, um, but I'm never quite sure about that because something, I mean, if I'm spraying a lot of it, let's say, let's say I'm a hundred times as big as a fly. So if I spray it a hundred times, I don't think that math really checks out, but you see what I'm saying? I get, I get iffy about, about spraying that stuff too much. Oh, you're not alone. You're yeah. not alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 So I'm, my first idea, and this, this is not the final patent. Because as we're thinking about it, we're thinking about a kind of Roomba that goes around and zaps flies with a laser beam. But that could be a problem because, you know, what if it short circuits and it shoots you with the laser? <laughs> what I mean, could go wrong? Yeah, well, yeah, what could go wrong? So I'm, I'm envisioning an advanced version of the fly swatter. And this, this would probably retail for a pretty decent penny. We might be talking 75, 80 bucks. 
it looks like a fly swatter, but on the handle, it has a button. And what we're doing with the fly swatter is the actual swatter part with that. Uh, I actually think it's kind of a pretty design meant to confuse the many eyes of, um, of flies. It's actually broken up into a grid because a major issue with swatting flies is that they're curiously intelligent at times and will hide in corners, uh, you know, sort of under cupboards, etc., etc. So you have this swatter. It's, it's divided into nine quadrants, right? And what this allows you to do is it allows you to place the fly swatter near the fly, say it's in a corner. So you put it up against the wall, you press the button, and sensors on the fly swatter in, like, indicate where the fly is and just the part of the fly swatter that needs to, to shoot out to kill the fly will shoot out to kill the fly thus ending forever the need to kind of poke them out of the corner and hope that they land in a place where you can get them. So it's a, it's a design that is oriented around hitting flies at hard-to-get angles. Well said. That was a nice round-off for your venture capitalist pitch. Mm -hmm. That was good. That was a really nice sort of leave there. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, there's, there's really interesting things going on with this, which... Uh, I, I love the idea. Um, it's very easy today to not see uh, a, a, a subtle but absolutely relentless and I would say ubiquitous trend of new things are so very, very often now reinventions of old things. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're reconfigured, they're technologized. Uh, I was in an archery store the other day looking at, I mean, some of the new bows are just like, you know, they're amazing, you know, and they're these carbon fiber things that are just like, you know, they're really, really scientifically designed, and yet they're, you know, very archaic forms. And in that sense, I think, you know, Mad Max is a movie that, with its aesthetics, it really created a vision of the future that I think crosses the whole Atlantean spectrum, you know? And we have, in your fly swatter idea, um, it, it's also a fulfillment of the, cre you know, the crystal radio sort of notion of, you know, take something, you know, humble, basic, uh, very utilitarian that you need, you really genuinely need, it's not some advertiser telling you, uh, and and redo it, and and that's the, the, your fly swatter idea is exactly the way I'm feeling about musical instruments now. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. take an idea, take a form, and and modify it for yourself. I mean, maybe it will just be mangled and, and you won't like the result, but maybe it will be the breakthrough. Ooh, um, ooh, what about and that's this? Of course, what about this? You know, um, your 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 thought about detechnologizing. Uh, or the technolo technologization uh, made me want to go in the opposite direction. So what if it looks like a fly swatter, but at the end of the pole, it actually, it's sloped like the roof of a house, and it's still a fly swatter, and then when you press the button, it's spring-loaded to shoot into the corner and squish the fly. What about that? Oh, um, I, I, I think that's great. <laughs> I think that's great. I think it needs a terrific name. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it really it it 
but that's the kind of thing that you could, you know, you, like you could turn that over to an advertising agency, and that would be a quarter million dollar job minimum. The, minimum, the, the, you know. How about the to, how about the fly wedge? The fly wedge. The fly wedge. Fly wedge. Uh, no, you know, no, wedge is kind of not sexy enough a word, you know? <laughs> or it's makes me think of a wedgie. You know, right. I think it just yeah. But you can, you've got your idea there. You you can work on the name and the branding, but I like it. I think it it, it was a good response. Cool. I'm glad you did. Do you have a, uh, a tool and a tip for us today? I do. Uh, you know, we said in our, our sort of theme is Atlantis's warning, and I have been thinking about warnings uh, of late. They're an important part of the the landscape in in terms of communications we all get. In, in different forms. And it occurred to me that they're very curious uh, rhetorical creatures, so to speak. I mean, on the one hand, uh, they can express, uh, you know, probably the most generous of intentions anyone can have. Uh, but on the other hand, there can be something very insidious about them. You know, think of, of some of the great characters in literature, you know, Iago, Shakespeare's Iago, or Claggart. In Billy Bad, Melville's Billy Bad, or Steerpike in uh, in Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast, which I was thinking about the other day. I, I quite like that series. Uh, Steerpike, I think, is a good character. Mm -hmm. But here's the tool: try to craft a fully helpful and you know beneficent warning of some kind, and then one that is loaded with hidden uh, or subversive freight, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Think about those two communications challenges because in confronting them yourself, you will uh, take on some interesting uh, new thoughts, I believe. I like that. That's great. And my tip is very uh, down to earth or down to skin level, but it's a reminder that we do need reminders and to uh, reconnect with things that we've learned in the past. I was uh, opening up a can the other night, and I don't know quite how I did it, but I managed to s get the edge to slice into the web between my two middle fingers, oh, God. Oh, and it was, it was an. Ex I mean, I truly did oh. hit a nerve because it 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 activated pain throughout my whole hand. Yeah. Um, and at initially, the blood was not really the issue. It was just the remarkable spread of the pain. You know, I thought, wow, you know, that's just on one little. You know, that should be a skin thing not a whole hand, muscle, nerve response, but it was. So the, my tip is, I, I remembered something from long ago, the paramedic days. Set the wound, set the wound. I did do that instinctively. I did set the wound. And you know, we often use that expression of set the bone. You know, we think of it, we, we often think of, of wounds with different words, staunch the wound, dress the wound, you know? Mm -hmm. But first of all, think of setting the wound, 
because that is the bigger umbrella from which those other things, like dealing with blood, you know, you're usually talking about, you know, pressure, water, clean water, sterilization, you know, there is a sequence. And the rubric is set the wound. And I think we all need rubrics that way. And to remember the ones that we've kind of taken on board instinctively. So that's the tip. And my dream is, is uh, this is one of, I don't have very many dreams involving uh, writing and, and stories, you know, in that direct sort of sense. I don't know if you do, but they're, they're uncommon. So this, this jumped out at me. But I was reading this book, and I, I got involved in it. I'm, I'm, so I'm dreaming of myself sitting in a chair reading a book about this, uh, well, I guess you describe him as both arrogant and virally confident man, sort of on the border between a total asshole and someone kind of to be admired. But he happens to fall for this woman who, over time, not too long, reveals herself to be a dominatrix and he just becomes completely besotted with her. And I'm reading in the dream and thinking, you know, I haven't really encountered this look at obsessive romance for a while. I can't think of a, a love story that's caught my attention in quite a while, strangely. Uh, but none from like a male point of view. And he completely falls under her spell and she ends up betraying him by getting him to have, at her command, to have sex with a minor. And she videotapes it. And then, uh, for money to a third party, uh, distributes the video's evidence. And um, so his career is destroyed, his official life, all the things, you know, are gone. But at the end of the book, and I'm reading along in the dream going, wow. So he's crushed, he's near suicidal, but he refuses to regret his devotion to this dominant woman. The fascination and the assurance, you know, remains. And, and a really perverse but interesting take on actual love, you know, broken and distorted as it may be. And I, I woke up kind of upon finishing the book and I thought, you know, I, that made me think, I, I was trying to think of who it made me think of that, and I, I really couldn't, you know, maybe uh, Mishima, uh, <laughs> the Spectre, Capote, I, I, I really, I, I couldn't really think of it. It was like, it was too adult a perspective, uh, a little bit tawdry, but but you know not a pot boiler either. And uh, so I, I woke up on that note thinking I I'm, I'm I'm not sure where that kind of work exists today. Maybe in an HBO series. <laughs>